In this episode of the Exploring Information Security Podcast, how to apply network security monitoring. Welcome to the Exploring Information Security Podcast, where you will learn, explore, and grow your security mindset. I am your host, Timothy D. Block, and in this episode, we will be exploring how to apply network security monitoring to your organization. With me today to do that is Chris Sanders, Senior Analyst at FireEye and author of a wonderful book called Applied Network Security Monitoring. Chris, how are you? Oh, man, I'm real good, Tim. Uh, I have to ask you real quick, is, is D-Block, is that French for the block? No, it's uh, it's actually Dutch. Oh, there you go. Well, now I know. Yeah, you're not the only person that has asked that of me. So I have, yes, I have a, a Dutch ancestry as, as far as the name goes. So. Oh, well, there you go. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, and and as I mentioned, I've read through your book. It's 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 a really good guide into getting into this, which is I feel like a one of the more complicated uh, fields disciplines to get into, particularly when you're dealing with so much data. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, I've seen folks get into it. You know, fresh out of college, and I've also seen folks get into it after twenty years of systems experience and. Uh, you know, different degrees of success. And, you know, I think you can be successful at it right out of college and with, you know, very little experience, but it definitely takes a specific type of environment to nurture someone to, to success for that. It is a little difficult to do it kind of independently. Yeah. One, and one of my favorite parts, what the part I was looking forward to the book the most was uh, the actual investigating of events and how you do all that together. And once I read through that, I had been in, a, in my new soccer role for a little bit and that like really helped me uh, get a handle on that. And I felt like I was actually doing something in a, in a particular, like with, with the purpose versus just kind of looking around here and there, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's funny. That's, that was my favorite part of the book to write. And it's kind of a, an unfortunate thing that it was the, one of the last chapters in the book, because I spent all this time talking about, you know, collection and detection and all these different tools. And then when I get to the part where you tie it all together, like I've been writing this book for eight months and <laughs> we're close to a deadline and I'm ready to get it done. And, and I wish I really could have got a lot more in that chapter just because I think what I hear from people is that one is really the the one that most people get the greatest deal of value from. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that's an area of, of focus for mine, especially with my, my doctoral research. And uh, hopefully you'll see a lot more coming from me on that as I get further through that program. Excellent. Excellent. So let's get into the first question. What is network security monitoring? Okay, the million dollar question. So, right. <laughs> uh, well, network security monitoring, right? Like the big goal is catching bad guys, and that's what I always say. Now, bad guys generally, like they they have different. There's different types of bad guys. You have your sophisticated ones, uh, your kind of opportunistic ones, but they all generally have something in common. So I'm gonna do what you're not supposed to do and quiz the host. Do you know what that that one thing in common might be? No. Well, in my eyes, it's that they all want to steal something from you. Right. Okay. And that something could be, you know, it could be intellectual property. I think that's the thing we all think of a lot. Personally, I, identifiable information, uh, PHI in the healthcare industry. Uh, it can also be something maybe not as obvious like uh, uh, your reputation, right? If, if they want to damage your reputation, that's essentially stealing from you. Uh, if they want to do a denial of service, they essentially want to steal your time because you're going to have to deal with that and it's costing financial resources as well. So, sophisticated or unsophisticated, all bad guys want to steal from you. And the bad part about it is, is that generally if they really want us to be successful, they probably are to some degree. 
Uh, I think we, a lot of us have heard the term that prevention eventually fails. Uh, and that's kind of why network security monitoring exists. It's to say that, you know, we understand you're going to lock the doors on your house, but you're probably still going to buy ADT service uh, to detect if somebody breaks in while you're not looking uh, out the window, right? And that's what network security monitoring is. It's essentially taking every device that's on your network, so everything with an IP address, which is a lot more things than we think of these days, uh, taking logs and data from those devices uh, and then essentially detecting anomalies within that and then investigating those anomalies to determine if they represent some type of intruder activity or a potential breach. Okay. So, and we talked about, you talked about, you know, pulling logs and everything. It, 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 what I liked about the book too, is that you gave like a, it's like a practical guide for people just to get started. Cause you use a lot of the free tools like security onion, uh, and some of the other ones, is this is this one that like one person can set up or is this something that like a team of people or, you know, how, I guess, how, what, what are the first things that you need to start getting, getting this implemented? Well, the good thing is, is that it is fairly accessible even to just an individual. Now, of course, in, in full disclosure, right, like I work for a vendor and we sell products that do these things. Uh, and at the, the higher end levels, sure, those things are going to help you out to, to some degree. But at the individual level, really, you know, if you just want to go and fire up a packet sniffer and look at the packets going to and from your computer, you're essentially doing network security monitoring uh, in, a, in a very simplified way. If you want to go to a web server and look at the web access logs and and grep around through those and, and see if you can find anything that looks odd, you're essentially doing network security monitoring. So the barrier to entry in that regard is very, very low. Uh, it's just having the a couple tools and kind of the willpower to go in and just, just look at a bunch of data, which you know may not be the most exciting thing to some people, but uh, <laughs> will be kind of addicting too. Right, right. Um, so is this something that you can just start like start small and then go like kind of build up to it? Or is this something you feel like you can someone could or a team could put in place and you know just start tuning everything? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the, the mindset I, I took when I wrote the book was really the concept of of the one man sock, right? So security operations center, you know, most of the businesses in this country uh, and in others are small businesses and they're not large corporations and they can't really afford uh, to spend a lot of time or excuse me, spend a lot of money on analysts and sensors and all these different things. A lot of times you have one network guy and that guy's also your security guy. <laughs> I said, you know, how do we make this accessible? Uh, you know, first of all, in terms of tooling, because again, you're not gonna be able to afford all, all the vendor hardware. You're gonna have to start with the free and open source stuff, which fortunately in our field is where a lot of the best innovation exists. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you start there, uh, and as long as you have a little time to spend with this and, and get into it, uh, you can really, you know, again, just start looking at logs. If you have logs from, you know, if your network has a dozen critical servers, if you can download something like NX log or, or some free log based tool, send those all to a central place to make them easier to analyze, then you're, again, doing network security monitoring. If you can buy a really cheap tap, maybe find an old server that's not being used somewhere, capture some packets or some NetFlow, put those in one place. Uh, you know, you're, you're doing what you need to do to start thinking about capturing bad guys because ultimately, you know, we all want to think that our networks are clean and there's no evil residing on them. But until you look, you don't really know. Right, right. So we've kind of danced around it, but what what is step one? So what is the first thing... Okay, people are going to go buy your book first, and then what are they going to do to get it implemented, or, or what do they need to do to start getting this spun up? Uh, well, you know, I think the first thing what I would recommend is is go out and uh, you know buy a tap somewhere. 
right? You can you can buy a more expensive tap, uh, you know, in the five hundred to a thousand dollar range. You can go out and buy a switch that will do port mirroring, uh, which is probably the more accessible. Uh, route where you essentially have traffic coming into one port and you mirror it to another. And on that other port, you have uh, a network cable going to a sensor. Now, that sensor can be anything. It doesn't have to be a server. Uh, if you have an old junky one laying around the, with some extra hard drive space you want to use, that's great. Uh, but just send that to somewhere that you can plug into it and collect that. And I think the really the easiest way to do that nowadays is with Security Onion. Uh, it's a Linux distribution uh, created by Doug Burks, uh, another former uh, FireEye Maniac guy. Um, and it essentially has all the network security monitoring tools you need uh, preloaded onto it. Uh, that includes pretty much everything in my book. Uh, you just boot it up, answer a few basic questions, and all the tools are already running. Uh, I know one of the highest barriers to entry to this type of thing is just getting the tools running because uh, right. some of them are fairly complex. Uh, so that's the place I tell people to start is, is you know, Get a tap or, or a port mirroring switch, uh, send those packets to Security Onion, and then you know the world's your oyster at that point. Now, when you say tap, what do you mean? <clears throat> so tap is, is essentially just an inline device uh, that sits uh, in between two points on your network and intercepts all the traffic and sends it somewhere else. Right. Okay. So a lot of times people will put those, uh, you know, right against the uh, the network egress point to capture everything coming in and going out of the network uh, over the internet. Uh, take those and just send those packets somewhere. So again, you're just essentially intercepting those packets so you can analyze them in some way. Okay. So after you've got all that set up, you got Security Onion installed. You're collecting the traffic. What's the next step? Uh, you know, that, the next step really at that point is just to dig in. It's, it's start learning about the data. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of different data types, and a lot of it relates to having uh, some level of systems and networking knowledge. So on the host side, you have things like, like Windows logs, uh, authentication logs, uh, web server logs, uh, DNS logs, uh, things like that. So, of course, you have to understand those, those services and how they work uh, to understand uh, to some degree what a normal log looks like. Uh, on the network side, you have packets and you have TCP IP, which is a little bit of a bear when you first uh, approach it. But once you have a, a good understanding of that, you know what normal TCP IP looks like. You can look for anomalies there. So it's really it's digging into the data, learning the services that exist, and learning what normal looks like. Um, you know, that isn't always the most scalable thing in a really large network, but starting out, if you start with just a few devices or a small network segment, you should, if you watch enough of the traffic and look at enough of the logs, start to get a, a semblance of what normal looks like. Um, at that point, you know, you can, you can spot some of the abnormalities on your own. Or on the other hand, you can also rely on software to spot those abnormalities for you. So you're using things at that point like intrusion detection systems, uh, snort suricata, uh, with rule sets loaded, they're going to generate alerts uh, for you to go out and investigate. Uh, those alerts are essentially something that says, you know, uh, based upon a signature, those IDSs have noticed some type of anomaly, uh, you know, go forth and, and kind of validate it, right? And so that's the other thing is, is either going around and doing some hunting on your own to find anomalies or letting those IDSs present them to you for investigation. So, so in the book, you said that to learn, to learn, to, to set the base, the baseline, the normal, what looks like normal traffic, you do that over like a weekend? Is, is uh, yeah, I mean, well, I, it's, it's kind of hard to put a time to it. I think right. uh, if you're just starting really small, you know, uh, capture traffic for a while and the, the longer, I mean, it, it's science at that point. The longer you capture traffic, it, it, the more reliable your sample is going to be. Uh, right. That it's actually a representative sample. So, uh, you know, start small because, you know, at first that's all you're going to be able to handle is, is capture a little bit, try to learn every, what everything you see is, uh, and then capture a little longer and, and keep doing that until eventually you 
you know, understand most of what's going on in the network. And then every time you see something new, that's, you know, some, you know, on one hand, something to learn and on the other hand, something to investigate. Right. Well, I guess my concern would be, is that what if, what if there's like just a bunch of malware already on the network? I mean, are are we just kind of expecting that to be normal and then we dig into it or (laughs) like, how do we, I guess my fear would be with something like that would be that there's that I would mark something as normal that shouldn't be. Yeah. And that's, that's a perfectly reasonable fear because, because, you know, from a, a psychology standpoint, right? Like we always want to think everything is bad unless we can prove it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a, a realistic scenario, you, you, I think most analysts learn as they get further along in this job that you got to assume everything's good until you can prove it's bad, uh, which is a little counterintuitive for the new folks in the industry. And sure, I think if you've never done this before and you're looking at it by yourself, you are very likely to miss stuff. Uh, and I mean, that's unfortunately, if you're, again, if you're doing this by yourself, that's, that's an unfortunate side effect that may occur just because right. it, it isn't the easiest thing. As you mentioned, the, the barrier to entry is a little high and, you know, a lot of the times, unless somebody tells you what you're looking at is normal, you're not going to know it. Right. Um, that's, you know, the fortunate things I, I think for folks who really want to get into this and do it seriously, uh, if you have the opportunity to work in a SOC, uh, around people who have experience doing this, that's really going to accelerate your growth because, uh, doing it by yourself with no input from others, uh, is just going to be a, a bit of a limiter in terms of how fast you can gain experience there. Yeah. One of the most frustrating things for me has been looking up these event names or looking up the events names I fired and then finding that they, that all I get is like websites that say this is the rule. Like, it, it, like there's there's not much discussion on what it is. Like I normally could do an IT job. Yeah, no, that that's right. And you know, it's it's one of those garbage in, garbage out things too. Because when you have like a like a snort signature, somebody wrote it, and hopefully they wrote a really good description with it, a really descriptive <laughs> name, have all these these informational links that are really helpful, and that's what you hope for. But in yeah. reality, that doesn't really happen. No. Uh, so you're kind of left to research it on your own. And if, if, you know, they're using a name that isn't a common name or if they're using an internal name to their company that isn't public, uh, you're going to probably be out of luck a lot of the times, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, well, and one of the things that I've discovered, and I think you kind of point this into your methodology for investigation, is to first step is to look at the rule. And that means digging down into the actual snort rule. And so I've actually started doing that. And I feel like so I can look at a snort rule. And like you said, it's, it's written by other people. Um, and there can be snort rules that fire based on, especially if they're not very long rules, can fire on legitimate traffic. And so I think that's helped me a little bit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things uh, recently I, I've been telling a lot of folks is, is, you know, it can be if you want to try to validate that a rule actually represents a true positive so that it actually detected the malicious thing it's looking for, actually validating that can be a pretty effort intensive thing. Like you have to look at all the traffic, understand everything that's going on, mm-hmm. maybe pull some other logs from the, the host system or do some memory forensics or something like that. It can take a while. Um, you know, in terms of deductive reasoning, you know, that alert really just represents a hypothesis that you're trying to, you know, understand whether it's true or not. And there's two paths to that. One is to validate the hypothesis or the other is to invalidate it. And I think a lot of people miss the invalidate part because a lot of times it's much, much easier to invalidate uh, an alert than it is to validate it. So for instance, say you've had a, uh, uh, an alert fire uh, and it's saying that a piece of, uh, you know, Windows malware uh, is found on this system. Uh, you know, so it, if you want to, if you want to go out and look and learn about that malware and, and do all this and try to pull some memory and things like that, that's great. But 
maybe it's faster just to check to see what the system is. If it's a Linux system that's supposedly infected with Windows malware, you can probably invalidate that pretty quickly. So, you know, striving towards invalidation versus validation can be a very handy tip in that sense. I like that. And I like how you put that. It's a hypothesis that you have to validate or invalidate. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think that's where a lot of people, you know, get it wrong. Because a lot of people spend a lot of time building detection tools, right? And that's important. We have to do that. But they spend all this time building this fancy detection tool that does this baseline and finds this anomaly or is this really complex signature. And then it generates the alert. And that's when they stop thinking about it. When in reality, anybody who's investigating, you know, or using this tool or doing any type of investigation, the alert is when their job begins, right? An alert is not an answer. An alert is simply a question that you have to go find an answer to. And a lot of times that's going to spawn more questions and, and hopefully you have to find more answers. Yeah, one, one of the things I feel like I have to do is kind of, it's not, I sometimes it's pretty obvious. Other times it's not so obvious. And I feel like I have to have a certain level of confidence in it. And I kind of have to take into account all these different uh variables so like looking at the reputation of the ip looking at the actual link looking at you know just the page if i can go to the page and and view that so at some point i feel like i just have to have some level of confidence whether to like it's it's an it's the gray area i guess you could say yeah absolutely and you know there's nothing wrong with that from an investigative side i mean i i I equate it to how uh, a doctor might do an investigation for a patient Mm because there's a lot of the same cognitive stuff going on right there uh, you know, the doctor goes in and they, they, they have an anomaly and they investigate uh, symptoms to try to get to a root cause. And a lot of the times they're not going to be able to get to what that, that affliction is, right? Just like we're not always going to be able to get to whatever the root cause of this anomaly is. Uh, in that case, it's very important from, from a time management standpoint to figure out where the line is. Like mm-hmm. where, when have I gotten to a point where I can't do anything else without further observation, uh, further observation is not giving up. It's another tool in your arsenal. You know, you have a device that's doing something weird and you don't quite understand it. Well, sit back and just watch it for a while. See what it does. Maybe wrap some additional signatures around it to, to see who all it's communicating with or enable some additional logging. But use that as a tool uh, and just continue observing that just over time, uh, just like a doctor would a patient. Uh, you know, maybe do some tests and things like that and Eventually, maybe you'll you'll get to your conclusion, or eventually, maybe you'll get your conclusion will be that there's nothing wrong and this anomaly is normal. But that's right. definitely a tool to be uh, wielded as as opposed to something to be afraid of. Yeah, I, and I'm finding those cases too is trying to get feedback too from. So, like you said, maybe going and grabbing a uh, a, a forensics memory capture of it and seeing on the box what's actually happening. Yeah, absolutely. It's. Uh, uh, it's it's very the, the management of an analyst time is a very tricky thing, especially when you have you know dozens or hundreds of alerts flowing in every day, and you want to try to look at them all. So you're you're kind of pushed not to uh, not to spend a lot of time in places you may need to. And, and obviously, uh, when you put stress on an analyst in terms of time, that creates cognitive roadblocks that decrease effectiveness. And that's right. that's the challenge with the job for sure. Because uh, the interesting thing about investigations are if you if you name all of the things that can happen to the human brain to make it not as effective as it can be. Uh, that's exactly, you're describing what an investigation is. It's a bunch of disparate information from uh, you know, various sources where things are not very standard and you're under a time crunch. And that's, uh, that makes it hard. It's not an easy job. <laughs> okay, so I want to kind of go back to logs real quick. Is there a log that would give you the most bang for your buck. So if, if you're just going to start out and start with one log, is there one that really helps or do you really need like as many as you can get? 
Uh, well, you know, it's definitely not as many as you can get. I think there was a time when everybody wanted to collect all of the things, and that was cool <laughs> up until networks got much bigger and much faster, and it just doesn't make sense to do that anymore. So you definitely want to take kind of a risk-centric approach where you understand uh, what – uh, you know what the business risks are to, to your organization and translate those into technical risk and, and kind of focus in those areas. Uh, you know, the, the kind of, you know, aside from that, the general rule of thumb I have for most people is if they're just looking for a place to get started is with uh, web proxy logs. Uh, just because it's something that, that most organizations have, uh, they have some type of proxy that, that does, uh, you know, some type of logging capability, uh, and and it's a good place to start because for one, a lot of malware uses port eighty uh, and HTTP for uh, command and control. Like uh, you know, most of the stuff I, I see on a daily basis is using that in some way. So it's it may be buried down in the proxy logs where you can find it. Uh, but beyond that, we also kind of understand web traffic a lot. Right, we know what normal websites look like in a lot of cases. Uh, we don't always, but sometimes it's very easy to point out, point out and find things that are abnormal in web traffic. So it's a good place to start with kind of a low barrier to entry, and you have the potential to finding uh, some really bad stuff. And, and that's up to and including, uh, you know, when we talk about sophisticated structured attackers, uh, you know, using malware that that utilizes HTTP protocol for uh, for communication. So there's a lot of value to be had there, and it's also easier to analyze than some other data types. Okay. So is there any other steps? So we're, we're kind of in, in the investigation stage at this point. Is there any other steps that need to be taken to really be effective at, at network security monitoring? Um, you know, I think the biggest thing from my standpoint, and this is kind of a focus area for mine, is, is what they call in the psychology world metacognition. Uh, and that's basically a fancy way of saying thinking about thinking. Um, so when you go in, when you're going into battle and going into your investigation, you want your thoughts as organized as possible. You want to come up with a strategy before you execute it. Um, science has is, is proven over and over again in other fields that when practitioners in a in a very cognitively challenging field, you know, have their mind organized in such a way that they know what their strategy is. Like here are all of my tools. Here are these strategies I have available to me. Um, and here's how I plan to use those. If you do that first before you just dive in, uh, you're going to be significantly more uh, effective uh, in doing that. Uh, you know, I equate it to uh, to a chef, and that's that's something very different than what we do, obviously. But uh, a chef spends a lot of time uh, with their tools, making sure their tools are, are laid out appropriately. Uh, chefs don't waste movement. When chefs waste movement, they get more tired, they get sloppier, uh, they're not as effective. Um, analysts also need to not waste movement. You need to have your, you know, everything, including your browser tabs, having the right tabs open, having the right things in your toolbar so they're quickly accessible, having a window open with all of your open source uh, intelligence research uh, sites there, your virus totals and whatnot so you can get to them, uh, having easy and, and free-flowing access to various data sources you may have, having collaboration tools that allow you to quickly input notes and, and things and move on to the next uh, case. Those are all critically important, uh, and I think they often get overlooked, but, but those things and kind of being the master of your environment are, are really critical to success. So what resources would you recommend for uh, being, I guess, I, kind of all-inclusive here, but uh, I like the idea of, of uh, like I said, the thinking, the thinking about thinking. Um, is there any resources you can recommend? Uh, yeah, so there's not a lot of research in the area, which is, is one of the reasons I was drawn 
uh, towards it. I think I mentioned earlier that I, that I'm doing a in the process of a PhD program right now, and it's uh, it's not a PhD in, in computer science like you might imagine. It's actually in cognitive psychology, um, with the goal being uh, my dis- dissertation is all about applying cognitive science uh, in the same way we have in the past to medicine and, and law and things of that nature to the the investigative process. Um, what I'm finding is there's definitely really almost nobody who's who's diving into that. Uh, right now, I think the the closest thing I've found thus far, and I, and I think many people are familiar with it, is is a book uh, written uh, about forty or fifty years ago uh, by a former CIA anal- analyst called the uh, the Psychology of uh, Intelligence Analysis. Um, now, intelligence analysis is is a fair bit different than than what we do, although there's an intelligence component to it. Uh, but that's that's the best thing I found thus far that kind of delves into that area. Uh, it doesn't directly relate, but there's a lot of abstract concepts that do. So, uh, you know, that's a good resource. Uh, hopefully, myself, uh, you know, the, the next big thing I'm working on will be, uh, you know, the dissertation, which there will be a version of that probably printed uh, a little less sciencey and a little more accessible, uh, kind of the same way applied network security monitoring was. And, and hopefully, I'll be able to help out there personally as well. Okay, so. Um Tuning. How should someone get started with tuning? Well, that's a that's a tricky one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's really there's no like sexy way to go about tuning. Uh, it's just like you have to like it, it's a grind, right? You know, when mm-hmm. you have a, a so you have tuning, you essentially have a detection mechanism that is in place. Either it's one you've written or someone else has, and it's going to generate false positives, and you want it to generate less false positives. Uh, you know, the number one way of doing that is, is really just like letting those false positives come individually, looking at them, determining, you know, is this just a normal behavior from the host? Is there a signature change I can make? Uh, basically making that determination and then doing it. Uh, you know, I work with a team with, with fire right now with a lot of really smart guys and they're at some great rules. Uh, but still, you know, nobody's going to write a rule that doesn't you know, nobody's going to write all their rules such that they never generate false positives. If they do, then those rules are probably never going to catch anything bad either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really, you got to love the grind and you got to go in and, uh, I'm a Kentucky basketball guy. And that's what coach Cal always says is you got to love the grind. And <laughs> basically what, you know, what that means is you just got to go in and you got to do the, the stuff that isn't fun and tuning is not fun. You got to go in and you got to investigate all those. And if it's a, if it's a matter of tweaking the signature, you do it. If it's a matter of just excluding something, uh, kind of have adding a whitelist of certain resources to the signature, you got to do it. And hopefully as you get along, uh, you write rules better on the first go and, and your rules get more, uh, more precise. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss that we haven't already? Um, you know, uh, I think the only other thing I want to mention, uh, if you don't mind, uh, you bought the book and I'm certainly very appreciative of that. I think, uh, uh, most people who, who read at least the first few pages in the book know that, uh, I donate all of the author royalties from my books to charity, uh, applied network security monitoring had a couple different, uh, co-authors aside from myself. And so we, we divided it up against multiple charities. Uh, but I also run a nonprofit called the rural technology fund. Uh, something I started back in 2008. I'm very, very passionate about. Um, I'm from the middle of nowhere. Uh, the, the Kentucky accent might have gave it away, but I'm from from the middle of nowhere, a little town called Mayfield, Kentucky, where as a, as a young man interested in technology, there really weren't a lot of resources for me. Uh, and that's kind of the, the state of many rural areas is, is people to get technology skills have to leave the area, and that's where the technology jobs are, and they ultimately never come back. 
And that's not good for those communities because uh, the smart people leave uh, and they take the high-paying jobs with them and they don't bring those back when we, in all honesty, live in a society where it should be very easy for someone to uh, to work uh, remotely for a company uh, via the internet and bring those high-paying tech jobs back to these small areas, uh, kind of some economic balance amongst the rural areas and the uh, their urban and suburban counterparts. So I started the Rural Technology Fund kind of uh, as a way to, to do my little part in addressing this. Uh, we do a lot of stuff. We provide some scholarships to uh, to rural students. We provide some some technology to rural classrooms, uh, and so we, we do a lot there. And we've recently started a new project called uh, Maker Spaces Across Rural America. So we're building these really cool modular computer labs uh, in ten schools in 2016. Uh, we're, they're going to have a robotics component. They're going to have some Raspberry Pis to teach kids about programming. There's a little bit of a security component as well. Uh, and really, the goal is to you know number one, get more people from these areas interested in this stuff. Uh, and number two, for those who are interested, help them build up their skills so they're more competitive uh, going into college uh, and going into the workforce so they can compete with the folks with with quite a few more resources. So uh, something I'm very passionate about. If you bought the book, you're already supporting it. Uh, same goes for my other book, Practical Packet Analysis. So I just wanted to, to do a quick drop on that. And if you, you want to learn more, uh, ruraltechfund.org is the place. That's great. That, sound, that sounds like a really good idea. I like that. All right. So, so what else would you like to plug? Um, you know, I think that's, uh, I think that's pretty much it. Well, what about your website? Oh yeah, I guess that too. That's a, a good thing. <laughs> Websites. Uh, yeah. So I have a, I have a couple, um, the main one associated with the book is, uh, applied NSM.com. Uh, it's not as active, it, it, not super active, but, uh, uh, myself and some of the co-authors, uh, publish there occasionally, uh, stuff directly related to NSM. Uh, my personal blog is chrissanders.org. Um, and I blog, uh, you know, mostly technology stuff, but all of the stuff associated with my, uh, my doctorate program is all, uh, published there as well. So if you're interested in kind of the abstract psychology side of it, that's the place for that. Awesome. Awesome. And on Twitter, you are at Chris Sanders, 88. That's great. Is 88 for something? Uh, it was my old, uh, number when I played sports in high school. Nice. I like 88. That's, a, that's a good number. That's around. All right. Well, that's that's uh, I think that's about everything. Um, well, it's not everything, but because <laughs> it's a very deep discipline. But uh, for this episode, it, it certainly is. So, thank you for joining me to discuss network security monitoring. Thanks, Tim. Enjoyed it. And that will do it. Hopefully, you learned something. If you didn't, drop me a line on Twitter at Timothy D Block or email me at Timothy Block at Gmail. Dot com, And let me know what you didn't learn, and we'll try to cover it in a future podcast. Show notes can be found at timothydblock.com forward slash E-I-S. If you enjoyed the show, share it with others and rate it on iTunes so it can reach others trying to explore information security. Have a good one.